0: Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by ArisX.com, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by CoinDesk. Here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It
1: is Wednesday, May 13th, and today we are looking at an incredibly interesting challenge for the modern economy. Two conflicting, contradictory forces that are shaping the economy in two totally different directions and are increasingly at odds with one another. On the one hand, we have an inflationary economic policy that makes currency worth less over time, but assets worth more, benefiting people who have the ability to invest in real estate and stocks and other financial assets over people who save, whose savings are inherently worth less over time. That's force one. Force two is the inevitably and inherently deflationary power of technology. As technology grows exponentially in terms of its capacity, its processing power, it drives prices down everywhere it touches. Think about phones which didn't even exist, cell phones and mobile phones which didn't even exist a couple decades ago, that now give people more power than anyone had in the world, any leader had even just 20 or 30 years ago. These things are now affordable by everyone. And if technology were allowed to wreak its havoc, to have its way on every industry, it would have a similar deflationary force on all of the prices around us. These two forces are in huge contrast with one another, and they are headed into a collision course to the extent that they aren't already colliding. This is the subject of Jeff Booth's new book, The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. Jeff is an incredibly experienced entrepreneur. He spent the last 20 years building companies like Build Direct, which grew to over a half billion in market cap through the dot-com meltdown, through the 2008 financial crisis. He is advisor to a huge number of companies. He sits on the board of a huge number of companies. He's an investor in a huge number of companies. So he comes at this from a technologist, and entrepreneurial background. My conversation with Jeff today is in some ways the crib notes to that book and to the argument that animates that book. It is an argument effectively that government policy of backstopping every part of the industry is not only not capitalism, it is putting us on a terrible, terrible collision course with revolution, social unrest, you name it. It is an inherently unsustainable scenario in which every new dollar of debt is producing less and less value, less and less real economic growth. We're experiencing diminishing marginal returns on how much debt can create growth, and eventually it just drives off a cliff. Now, underlying all that is this incredible, unstoppable deflationary force of technology, and in Jeff's estimation, if we were to allow this force to do what it would, we might find ourselves in a scenario where, yes, people had less money, there were less jobs available, but people would be working less time to have the same benefit, the same quality of life, because prices would naturally come down on the things that we needed, because of the deflationary force of technology. We would, in other words, not have the scorecard of our careers or our salaries that go with those careers, or the price of the assets that we own, but instead we would have a quality of life equal to or exceeding what we have now, without the fundamental chaos that might ensue when this musical chairs game ends. This idea that inflationary economic policy is at odds and on a collision course with the inherent deflationary power of technology is an incredibly important topic, and Jeff is a wonderful guide to that. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now, one note as always, with these types of long interviews, we edit it very, very lightly so you experience the conversation almost exactly as it happened. All right. I am here with Jeff Booth, author of The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future. Jeff, thanks so much for hanging out today.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: So I'm super excited about this conversation. Uh, I, I think that there's so many ideas contained in this book that are um, so different than the way that we look at the world, that it's sort of a a, a classic uh, red pill for for a lot of folks. So I think that it's going to be a, a red pill for a lot of folks. Um, but I want to, for listeners who haven't had the, the chance to dig into this yet, uh, who haven't had the chance to read this, I want to take some time to really set this up, to set up some of the big ideas um, and so let's start with kind of the the terms and the stakes of this conversation about inflation and deflation what does it mean that our economic policy is inflationary and what does it mean that technology is deflationary
2: yeah and and most people have a, an emotional response to deflation right? I, I, we t- we were taught deflation is a bad thing through school right so and we have our heads in the sand and say okay that's that has to be bad because we were taught that um, it's not good or bad. Uh, deflation is, is simply when you're, when goods and services go down and re- your money gets more valuable and inflation is the op- opposite. Your uh, your money gets less valuable and goods and services get, uh, get uh, higher in price. Um, and we've grown up in an inflationary environment. So it's all we know. Uh, so, in an inflationary environment, I buy a house. I use dollars today. or I, I use a deposit today. I borrow money for that house today. And then through inflation, it rises in price um, through my life. And I pay back the do- pay back the debt in cheaper dollars tomorrow because I make more all of my life through, infl- through inflation. So the dollars that I borrowed today get paid back with cheaper dollars tomorrow. So for some asset classes... It works really well, and in some so or so asset classes, if you take leverage, and you have an inflationary environment, it's a good thing. Um, and those those are opposite. So the, the so if you have savings in a deflationary environment, it's a good thing. So not not good or bad, different different winners and different losers on, on both sides of that, uh, that, that coin. But we've grown up in an inflationary environment, and it's hard to question because the, the rules are upside down compared to the rules that we've grown up with in a deflationary environment. So that's
1: kind of the the inflationary side and I think that the point that's really salient here and to take away and and honestly for, for those who are listening they know my style it's we're gonna construct this whole argument basically recreate the, the book in some ways here um, the, the key part here is that uh, it, it's not it's neither good nor bad but there are trade-offs and there are different categories of winners and losers not just in the context of people but also in the context of asset classes certain types of economic behavior namely savings are uh, are disincentive devised by an inflationary environment because those the money that you're saving is worth less tomorrow than it is today, whereas investments in capital assets uh, that can appreciate alongside the, the inflation are can be valuable, right? Um, what does it mean then, switching over to the deflationary side, what does it mean that technology is inherently deflationary?
2: Well- so So first, it, it, anybody who sees technology and in fact anything you use today, the monopolies are all created by that same kind of use of deflationary uh, technology and deflation. right you, Google's free, right? Uh, all of the things that you use on it are free. Yes, they get advertising, but it, but their benefit, creating a monop- monopoly and an AI monopoly on top of that free information um, for you is free. Uh, Whereas before you paid for that information Um, and it destroyed countless businesses uh, as it created a monopoly. Amazon gets cheaper every year and then they add movies. Um, So, uh, and and those are free. And so your phone, everything on your phone gets, it gets better every year. I don't buy a camera anymore. I don't buy a, 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 uh, my guitar tuner anymore there's a whole bunch of things today on my phone that i don't buy anymore and it gets more powerful every year technology does that um and it's so you get more for less on an exponential trend because it rides on moore's law and even if you question that moore's law won't go on forever it will feel like moore's law goes on forever for uh, forever for, uh, Because of what's coming next in AI and or quantum computing and everything else. So we can expect into the distant future that we're going to get more and more for less and less using technology as it becomes a backbone of everything.
1: For those who haven't actually come up through technology, so your your background, obviously, which I shared in the intro, is in the technology space. I spent 10 years in San Francisco, both starting companies and as a VC. For those who haven't or don't, don't have that background, what is Moore's Law and what is the, the, the cause of this uh, this kind of exponential growth? Is it about the cost of inputs or is it about the, the actual rate at which uh, technology evolves?
2: Yeah, so Moore's law is the doubling of computer the compute power every eighteen months, and 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 if you think about doubling and doubling and doubling every eighteen months, uh, the what what I'll, I'll use an analog here that I've done I've done to, to countless uh, people all over the w- uh, world, and and very rarely do people get the answer. If you fold a piece of paper on itself at 50 times and you can only fold at seven but if you could fold it 50 times how thick is the piece of paper and if you ask that question to people that uh, the average answer is about two inches um, very rarely will you get an answer that's higher than the roof uh, or the ce- ceiling the answer to that question is the piece of paper would fold to the sun from the from from the earth to the sun and and it, and if everybody got that answer, right, or if half the people got that answer, um, then, then you would think people understand exponential patterns and this is no problem. At least enough people understand exponential patterns. But because nobody does, including me, what it says is human beings are really terrible at understanding exponential patterns. And why that matters a lot is Moore's Law is an exponential pattern. And again, even if you don't use Moore's Law, but you use it as a framework for what's happening in technology, you have an exponential pattern. If you equate those two things, we're on Fold 33. And, um, and Fold 33 would travel from, say, Boston to Detroit. But we're in the thick steps of technology doubling today. So that technolo- so that So in 18 months or two years, you're going to have another double. And while everybody's looking backwards at technology, uh, they're looking backwards and holy cow, where did self-driving cars come from? Um, where's AI going? But they're looking backwards, looking forwards. It's moving so much faster than anybody can even comprehend. And that doubling is a doubling of the, the deflationary impact to, uh, to society um, across every industry. So, So if it took effectively central banks all over the world um, if, if through debt and if it took 185 trillion dollars of monetary easing over the last 20 years um, to produce 46 trillion dollars of gain in GDP gain so four dollars for every one dollar of GDP gain you can tell it's not working and it's not working because of the deflationary impact that's a bigger force today that's looking backwards looking forward, there's, there's nothing that central banks can do to stop it.
1: So I'm going to come back to this point about uh, the idea of using debt to produce growth, but I want to I want to um, discuss what uh, the natural path of technology deflation would do, holding aside inflationary economic policy. So you spoke of the examples uh, that are really easy consumer, basically consumer technology examples, where the the price of the iPhone is you know cheaper than it was before, and it, it wasn't even a thing that existed fourteen or. 15 15 years ago, right? Uh, We see it in the context of how much a TV is now versus what it was in the mid 90s. We see it in the context of uh, services which are uh, reducing the costs constantly. So, those are kind of obvious examples. But, you know, for people who are sitting there thinking, well, sure, those are, you know, uh, basically computing related things, or, you know, how is this going to impact other industries or what would it do to other industries? How would technology be deflationary in an industry that isn't just kind of what we think of as consumer technology? Technology again, holding aside uh, an inflationary economic policy,
2: propping up an old system. So it's going to be moving, and I'm, I'm on boards of countless companies that are moving in, into everywhere, right? The, so it is not just in consumer apps. AI is a backbone of everything, and the digital nature is moving into countless industries at light speed. So it's it's coming it, it, it's coming to a movie theater near you. It's coming everywhere. <laughs> um, now. But more importantly, when you say asset classes, probably the one that would stand out is housing. Rents keep going up. Housing prices go up. does it? You have to ask yourself, what would prices be of that if you didn't stimulate economies with $185 trillion of debt? You would have just seen the natural trend of price, prices falling everywhere. So we fool ourselves into believing that uh, that some things always go up in price because some things are artificially inflated to go up in price.
1: So this is, a, I think, a key point from your uh, your book. You actually said this: uh, we fool ourselves into believing that assets such as stocks or housing always go up over the long term because they always have. Which I'm sure there's a name for that uh, that uh, that bias, right? Or that um, that logical fallacy. But uh, but I don't know it. But but let's talk about how we got here then. So what was the path? I mean, effectively, what you're talking about with with economic policy and inflationary economic policy is the idea of using debt to produce growth. When did this come about? What were the key inflection points whether it's Bretton Woods or 1971 and leaving the gold standard or 2008 for those who are trying to kind of put this in historical context. You know, you said always go up over the long term because they always have. When did that always start and what were the key points and the key decisions that that got us
2: here? <laughs> That's a big question. So we might have to take <laughs> a little bit of time to get. Yeah, this. exactly. Yeah, no worries. So, um Okay, I'll tie this back to uh, John Maynard Keynes. A lot of people talk about negatively uh, now and everything else, but I think his policies are being manipulated right now. And, and so so he, he was, government should step in in soft times, and then repay in, in good times. And and he also believed, he wrote, a, he wrote an article or uh, wrote a paper in 1930 saying the economic, uh, the economic possibilities of our grandchildren. And in it, he forecasted, I think it was a 13-hour work week today, where we are today, um, looking at what was happening in the kind of eightfold or, or, or more that, that you'd have, to have with technology from that time and, and, and saying what, what, what would that look like and for a long time we were actually tracking towards that and we were tracking ironically until 1971 um we had a 38 hour work week um and then it then after the US went off the gold reserve it started to change now you needed two incomes to support the same thing and that, and and you started to and it started to get more and more further and further away from that ideal so a very small percentage of the people live that they, they don't have to work their assets are so 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 high their revenue is so high from rent seeking on those assets and they don't have to so a small per- portion of the population has had, had that because we've manipulated currency so that some people are enjoying the gains and most people are not so that's really what's ha- what's happened um and and, and it's getting and it's gotten worse every year Uh, since. So when you started it, it was a tiny little bit, nobody would notice. Now where we are, um, it's a lot. And, and so if in the last 20 years, $185 trillion of stimulation to produce $46 trillion of economic growth. And so you can see it really clearly. By the way, that's pre COVID. Imagine what it looks like now, right? But it, it looks like, so now if you just follow the technology doubling, and effectively, the productivity gains doubling. That means you have to double the debt to remain even. And now you're getting to a debt, that, uh, the debt level that is unsustainable. It's, it's impossible to pay back. And it's not necessarily the debt. It's debt that you can, can't pay back. So you have to do artificial bailouts and everything else um, of that. So you create a, a perverse incentive structure that creates the debt in the first place.
1: So let's dig into this a little bit more uh, and, and where incentives lead people. Um, maybe we'll, we could even use or bring in the idea of uh, negative interest rates being floated right now as an extreme oh, example a, that helps.
2: example, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so uh, let's talk about in a rational society, if you have negative interest rates, what does it, what does it do in terms of pushing people into risk assets to look for yield?
2: So, so let's start before inter- negative interest rates and then we can go there afterwards. If so, but, but if you look at through the lens of what is happening right now, so all of the bailouts and people are up in arms about the bailouts of the airlines, the oil patch, everything else. And, and effectively prior to this, you had almost free money, right? So savings were worth nothing. And and as a CEO, if you are you going to keep savings if they're worth nothing, and the other CEOs are buying back stock and increasing stock price, hey, you're going to get fired, right? Because 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 why would you keep money in cash? Cash is worthless, and the and the government is telling you money's worthless. Don't put it in. Don't keep it in cash, and then an event like this happens because you're wired for perfection. You have so much debt leverage against this, any outcome, you don't have the savings to do it, but you were, you were incented not to have the savings. So is all of society is incented not to have the savings. And, and now you have your handout because now I'm going to fail. Sorry. The, uh, and now you have your handout because you, uh, because you don't have the savings to pay for a rainy day.
1: Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is what people have been frustrated about is that you have all of these uh, these kind of corporate actors who have created basically no resilience in the system, incredibly fragile systems. But the argument, which I think you're making, which is uh, is that the, the system didn't incentivize them to do that. It, it created a scoring system in the stock price, which actually led to the exact opposite type of conclusion. And what markets do
2: is they get extremely efficient at doing the thing that the incentives lead to right totally and now now take it one step further we are we the existing path interest rates have to be negative to try to to try to drive, drive growth against against um, a bigger force of technological deflation they have to be negative and then they and then they have to be more negative and more negative at what point do they, the incentives Change society and the risk assets so much that it's just a lottery ticket. And what I would say is, we're already way past that point. Right? Effectively, you have governments. You have Trump coming out today and saying, "We need to take our interest rates negative."
1: What? yeah I, what, what does it actually look like for people who are trying to just conceptualize this? and, and by the way, for, for, to be clear, you know if, if the president tweeting about this wasn't uh, enough of a sign, you're seeing extremely respected economists like Ken Rogoff who are writing essays about the need to take us into deep negative interest rates. So this is a, an idea that was previously sort of uh, you know uh, a, a non-starter right? a sacred cow that has been slaughtered pretty pretty aggressively.
2: And you And you know Nathaniel, you know from my book. Um, that I I did a whole bunch of research on here, and and the IMF had working papers going back years ago. That what do we we might have to take neg- interest rates to negative six globally, right? That uh, that to uh, further next recession. So so when you have serious econo- economists talking about this, it, it don't doesn't it beg the question? Isn't it? Might it not be something else? How can we say we actually have an economy that functions in a world where you, where, where any savings, you're losing money on your savings, right? And, and, and that's, it just forces you to go, okay, something else might be wrong here because we keep on building all of these um, uh, new models and new everything else and more stimulus and more stimulus and more stimulus because we're missing the thing biting at our very nose. The thing biting at our very nose is there's nothing that they're going to do to stop it. Technology, def- te- technological deflation, or the or the benefit of technological deflation is is too big a force for whatever they do.
1: So, one of the one of the strange paradoxes of the modern time. Is this feeling on the one hand of that people have of feeling further behind and uh, and and less um, less in control of our economic destinies than ever before, while at the same time having access to experiences and services and uh, and technologies that. Uh, Grandparents couldn't dream of, right? That that uh, uh, the the robber barons couldn't have possibly imagined, could never have paid for, right? There's this weird paradox of the 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 things we have around us and have access to, with this sense of feeling farther and farther behind. And part of that, I think, has to do with the uh, exacerbation of of inequality that comes from this sort of. Extreme focus on uh, uh, on asset growth and or asset uh, price price appreciation that that is a byproduct of inflation. But I wonder if you could explain a little bit that that force, how the focus on inflation um, benefits asset prices, and how the the inflationary benefit to asset prices actually exacerbates uh, inequality.
2: Yeah, so let's use it again through this lens right now. So the government is coming in and they're bailing out industry and they're bailing out. So it, 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 let's use Zoom as an example. Zoom, uh, 10 million users to 300 million users or, or participants in, in a month and a half in, in growth. Um, I suspect it's not going to go from 300 million participants back to 10 million after COVID. Would you agree with that? hmm Every one of those people that is, is on Zoom And every other uh, uh, video conferencing uh, suite that has experienced the same growth is a a person paying a percentage of rent to a commercial building, and and if you allow what should happen to happen, that means commercial prices have to commercial real estate has to fall precipitously, as do rents. Because supply and demand, as more people get more work done for less, and then uh, um, over over Zoom, now it might not go back. It might not stay at three hundred million. It might go to two hundred million. But that's a lot of people in commercial real estate that changes dramatically, and it's just one tiny industry that is, technology is is impacting. Um, so you have governments coming in and saying, "Don't worry, we're going to save. We're going to pay the rent for you." We're going to keep the prices high. We're going to bail out the save. It. We're going to bail out the high leverage loans to the 2.3 trillion dollars that is against commercial real estate. And we're going to take it off the balance sheets of the banks and put it on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. And what that does is it stops prices from falling where they need to. And as a byproduct, there's a whole bunch of people um, left out of that game. Because prices didn't fall, and those and those people's rent stays high or goes higher because of that artificial easing, and then the government has to go and 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 bail them out through so let's call it basic income or something to pay for artificially high prices that they created in the first place.
1: So this is the this is the interesting contrast: is that uh, you have a scenario where technology is pushing the price of. Of, of an equivalent or better life down, right, in terms of a, an actual quality of life. But there are certain categories of things we need in life, namely places to live. Food,
2: uh, food, and- food housing, education. And so all those things are rising in price because, because the stimulus dollar is going in it. So if you just looked at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you said, why do people feel this way? Because they're scared to death of, a, of, of because they wonder how they're going to feed their families and, and and when they feel that way you have the start of revolutions and you have political divides and you have um, and so and, and it's perfectly predictable because because governments are creating it
1: it's actually it's really interesting too. Speaking of things that are starts of revolutions, um, Preston Pish tweeted out a uh, a chart from the Federal Reserve a couple days ago, which was just a change in financial assets since the two thousand seven two thousand nine recession by Income Group, and it's it's. Notable, right? You have the top one percent who have increased their financial assets by one hundred and twenty-five percent. The eighty to ninety-nine percent have gone up seventy-five percent, and you know, so so you know, three quarters more financial assets. And the sixty to eighty percent have uh, increased by almost fifty percent their financial assets, whereas the bottom twenty percent are down thirty percent. Right? So you have the situation where. You know, even after uh, 2008, the actual the 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 bottom of society, the bottom tier of society, from an income perspective, is getting further and further behind. I mean, it's validating this sensibility that people have.
2: And 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 here's the thing: I'm one of the top. I'm in the one percent. I wrote the book because society doesn't work if a very few people have all the wealth and everybody else doesn't. Um, The ones without come and take it back. Right and and you you cannot run if you just project this forward and you keep doing this and you're going to concentrate wealth into very few people's hands and everybody else is going to be have-nots. Capitalism doesn't work in that scenario. Um, it, it, it it's predictable. That's why I said it's really predictable what happens next.
1: So let's talk about that for a minute. What are the what are the kind of keep the party going, keep the lights on types of solutions you're seeing? I know you write about a few in the book, such as modern monetary theory.
2: Yeah, and and all of them. I just think so. Negative interest rates to six percent, and then further. uh, Modern monetary theory. All of the all of these debt that can never be paid back. If you said. Before COVID, 250 trillion of uh, of debt to run an 80 trillion dollar global economy. After COVID, what do you have? What, is it going to be 350 trillion, 400 trillion? That, by the way, that's the that's the known. That's not the stuff that's unfunded pensions and everything else. That's the that's the absolute debt. And that so 350 trillion, 400 trillion globally to run a 60 trillion dollar global economy. At what point? At what number? do you say this doesn't make any sense anymore? And there's a reset and things that don't change for a long time change overnight. Right. And, 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 and what's happened is all of that risk is moving into currency risk. And because when you don't trust the currencies, you don't trust somebody ability to pay you back, or they're going to manipulate the currency to pay you back. Trust breaks all at once. And so, so, I, I hope that there's not a disorderly unwind, but all of the, all of the proposals on what you said, MMT, um, the negative interest rates, all of the ones that are pushing on a string to try to pretend we have growth in spite of a deflationary environment that, are big, that is bigger than that, all of those will make a disorderly unwind more likely.
0: Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed US-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at Stellar.org slash Coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large-cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale slash coindesk. Do you think that UBI falls into this as
1: well? Just put kind of putting a band-aid on the scenario?
2: Yes. Yes, because if you just think about what UBI, how how do you pay for UBI? Right, if you just if you run uh, the models on UBI uh UBI, the and times the population, the amount of money to be able to pay for that, and where does that money come from? So I, 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 UBI might be one of those things. There needs to be a social safety net to make the transition. There needs to be agreement by governments to maybe to make the transition. But 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 again, all of these solutions on the right hand side so, or so on the uh, on typically the Republican side or on the on on the Democrat side, and the, the further you go there, like the super right wing, super left wing, all of these solutions are being argued on top of an old system and without either side saying, how are we going to ever pay this back? And if you can't pay yeah. it back, it sometimes, it just, just debt itself is disinflationary in itself because taxes have to go up a lot to be able to pay that. And so if you go to MMT and say, oh, we can just print as much money as we want and we don't have to pay it back, well, then why are we paying taxes? Why don't you just keep on giving money away?
1: Which is interesting because this is something that uh that many bitcoiners, certainly kind of those of a libertarian bent, have been saying for some time, and but you're starting to hear actually echoed in the 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 Twitter halls of the the general proletariat, let's call it, right, where you know these numbers that we're seeing are so extreme in terms of the amount of stimulus coming out of seemingly nowhere that it's causing regular people even to ask that type of question too
2: and 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 that's a, and I think that's it, that's it you'll get to. You get and, and a lot of times you look at it in a country specific, but when you don't have something that you can have an exchange rate that you can trust globally to a currency, then it, then trade breaks down. So, so every country right now, a uh, reason why Trump uh, tweeted out, "We need to take our negative interest rates," is he thinks that other people are using negative interest rates to compete with lower prices to be able to enable trade. That is not the case uh, and, and they might be. Um, And he wants to get in front of it. But the whole point is all of that. Every country is stuck in a loop that they're they're trying to create more jobs, uh, more jobs in an environment that's going to have less jobs.
1: So uh, I want to come back to the currency piece. Obviously, it's something that we talk about a lot here. Um, but before that, just uh, by way of understanding, so I, I imagine that there's some people who are thinking through this and trying to put on their contrarian hat, right? And trying to really think through the counter arguments to this, who are trying to kind of live inside this idea, well, uh, you know, maybe the music never has to stop, right? And this game of musical chairs is just it's just a fun party. And so I guess the question is, how do we see or, or how can we um, understand Understand the the declining capacity of debt to create growth. Um, you know wh- where does that show up? Uh, you know you mentioned the statistics about how much debt it's taken to produce growth, but is it is it the case that that's actually uh, the the amount of debt to produce each new unit of growth is increasing?
2: So, so how many years, like for, for your listeners, this is interesting. As I was writing the book, I was just thinking about the fact, Some of these things just made me say, cause I've been talking about this for 10 years. And I said, I just have to do something about it. Um, but how many years do you need to hear central bankers saying we can't get inflation up, right? How to, to believe they can't, right? Every year, they do more, more, more tax cuts, more, more of this, more, more debt, more lower interest rates. Every year, it takes more, and they're getting less. The data is really clear. Uh, more for uh, and and it, it makes sense because it's it's it, it on on the exponential trend of de- technology deflation, It has to be more each year. So each year, they're getting less return on the debt. And you used to be able to, let's say you, um, uh, you needed a GDP gain and government would come in and say in, in a recession and they'd say, okay, let's build roads and bridges. And why did that produce job, short-term jobs and longer-term job, and longer-term term GDP gain? So it might be a good use of debt to be able to produce, uh, produce longer-term GDP is because you spent less time in the car and so you had more productive time at the office, right? That's really why. Today, today, all the the superhighways are digital, right? And so, so I use Zoom as an example. There's not in Canada where I, I am. There's not one extra job in Canada because of Zoom. It's borderless, right? Um, and and I was on a House of Commons call to our government, and we were using Zoom. Right? There's not one extra job. The, The highways of the future are digital, and they take away that GDP gain. The GDP gain is in the technology, but it's not enough to offset what's coming out.
1: It's interesting. Uh, uh, one of the things that I, as I was thinking about this conversation earlier today, I noticed uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who was uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, had posted a stat from uh, Hosington Asset Management that calculated that in the decade uh, be- from 2009 to 2019, China lost 38% of its growth generating capacity per dollar of debt created, basically. So each dollar of debt was producing almost 40% less growth than than previously, which I think is, reflective of this kind of idea that uh, the, the there's diminishing returns eventually that happen in this
2: model. Yeah, so so there China's a really good example. I've spent a lot of time there throughout the years and and when I first went to Shanghai or Beijing, the road system was terrible, right? And they built the, how fast they built cities and productive use of capital um in new cities and new cities and, and new roads and new trains and everything else. Productive use of capital, um, it drove a corresponding GDP gain. But no country in the world has ever increased their debt to GDP faster than China, and that's the known. That's not the black pools and everything else that's on uh, off balance sheet. Um, and what else are you going to build to drive the GDP gain, right? So that it's unproductive use of, of debt. And now you have, assuming you have to pay that debt back, it's a cost to you're essentially. Pulled forward a whole bunch of demand, and you have to pay for that demand, which is deflationary in nature as well.
1: So let's bring it back to the currency question. How does this become a, a currency problem? How does this turn into currency crises?
2: Um, so, uh, all, a, a, a currency, and we've seen this. You could use Venezuela. You could use uh, you, uh, you could use other countries that see this all the, t- the time. At some point, if debt can't be repaid, um, then there's two ways to solve that: increase taxes a whole bunch um, to be able to pay that back, and that has a cost of um, slowing down the economy and a lot further and creating a, 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 a probably a massive depression. And just let's forget technology uh driving things cheaper all the time as well but that would be one way and over a long period of time pay back that debt um, get on side but that um, or essentially destroy your currency and 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 have uh, have hyperinflation and pay back the debt uh, uh Weimar Republic in Germany and and I don't think we've ever seen the glo- the world where we had a reserve currency like the US, we're running 80% of world trade and, and every other currency trying to manipulate their currency on top of that, that, that currency as well. So it's hard to say kind of when this happens, but at some point people are going to wake up and they're going to say, this is never repayable. Um, and I'm not going to trust that currency anymore because I know the only way you're going to pay me back is by changing the, the, the underlying currency value.
1: Well, it's interesting because it's almost like the first wave of this that we're seeing, the the destructive impact has to do with dollar strength compared to other currencies around the world, right? So I did an episode a couple of weeks ago about Lebanon and the oh, Lebanese pound oh, yeah. has lost something like 60% of its value against the dollar. It's been pegged to the dollar officially at about 1,500 Lebanese pounds to the dollar ever since 1997. And that started to slip last year. And the problem is Lebanon imports basically everything. Everything right? right. So all of its debts are dollar-denominated, which is the story of basically the whole world at this point. And all of its uh, everything that it sells inside to consumers is paid by Lebanese pounds. So when that starts to break, it creates real challenges, right? Uh, uh, last fall, it was in the context of gas companies who were trying to be able to buy gas from from abroad with uh, with Lebanese pounds, and they weren't able to. They just shut down, and there were these huge lines and huge shortages, and so on and so forth. So this has become now a major, uh, a major catastrophe there. And then we're not even talking hyperinflation. We're just talking about 60% of people's value, you know, the, the value that they hold evaporated overnight, which can erase decades of, of savings, right?
2: And, and it, it feeds back on itself because um, right now, why the dollar is getting stronger is, is every country, every business in every country denominated by U.S. needs that currency right now as fast as possible. And so there's a supply demand um, that that is that is driving um, that current currency U.S. currency value up. It won't stay there over time, Um, but it uh, but for now that's what's uh, probably for the next six months. That's that's what happens with the U.S. currency. But you're right, the impact to other nations who are trading partners who do provide GDP growth to the world and businesses in the U.S. Right, so. Them failing has has a cascading effect across the world, um, is a big deal.
1: One of the points that you've made, uh, previously has to do with, you know, with some of these strategies, MMT, etc., are just kind of like, uh, you know, just the, the, the continuation of the system as we have it. Is that, um, you know, people will point to Japan and say, Hey, look, they, you know, it's kind of worked there for them, right? Uh, but it's different when everyone is trying to do it at the same
2: time. That's that's the big thing. If one country essentially and is allowed to do that for a long for a time, uh, does does it? Um, and, and in Japan, uh, they they uh, they owned the debt, right? So uh, so the, the the holders of Japanese currency it was mostly government and everything else. It wasn't foreign denominated. Um where they had the uh, that problem um, but but one country could probably get away with it with every country right now, essentially all the it, a bunch of the trade wars are about currency wars right if every currency is playing the same manipulation game, at what point do, 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 does the music stop and somebody's left without a chair or everybody's left without a chair?
1: Where does uh, an asset like Bitcoin fit into this thesis for you?
2: So I'm a, I'm a really big believer on, on on Bitcoin and and from the fundamentals of what I think happens next and the game theory everything else that that, that happen first it's a network effect it's built into code that uh, more and more, more trust will enable it more people use it more the on wraps and trust will uh, as a as a byproduct of that, um, this uh, this might not be popular with uh, with a bunch of the Bitcoin people, but it is how I feel. So, um, if I could choose to have my Bitcoin go to zero, and governments chose to have a Bitcoin like equivalent, so that we could transition to this in an orderly way. I would take that, um, that that choice because it meant society actually prevailed and 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 you could make this transition, um, uh, hopefully peacefully. Um, I don't think there's any chance of that. I, I I think so. I think Bitcoin is going to. I think Bitcoin is going to do, dominate, but it's going to dominate because of because countries cannot get together and do what. Uh, and and trust uh, and and develop a currency that has bitcoin type equivalents each each country is going to try to create their own currency um to manipulate rules because we have a low trust environment right now and 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 so i don't think that that will happen and as a byproduct of that then bitcoin is going to be very very successful so
1: it's interesting, uh, you know. Keynes proposed something he called a bancor at oh, Bretton Woods, right. which would be this this currency, which looked, in retrospect, a lot like the first proposal for Facebook's Libra when it came out. Right, right. separate from any one national sovereign currency, and he believed really strongly that the world's reserve currency shouldn't be the the province of any, any one nation. But of course, the U.S. had just won World War II, and that was we were the organizing factor. And what's more, it was the U.S. global security guarantee. That kind of made the system that that would grow, you know, the globalization system that would grow from there, work. And I think that the problem is, and why I think most people who are economists and historians, in particular, share some of your skepticism, is that uh, the. Uh, the, the US would have to believe it was somehow in its interest to also move the world off of the US dollar system for any alternative that wasn't just a single uh, country's reserve currency to work. And that type of, uh, it seems very difficult in the world that we have today to, to, to imagine a US that would feel that way.
2: Exactly. Exactly. But if they don't, and, and you accept the thesis of so what I talked about technolo- technological deflation and what governments are doing to try to stop it it's going to happen anyways it's just going to happen to Bitcoin because it, it also creates an, an incentive for other governments to get together earlier potentially buying Bitcoin in, in behind the scenes before, before a, a group of governments to send them and say okay we're pegging to this because it has more security than the US dollar. So it creates, by not doing it, it also creates an incentive for it to happen faster.
1: So, how do you see this playing out? When when you see kind of uh, Bitcoin emerging in this, is it through individuals opting out of their local monetary regimes and opting into Bitcoin for global trade? Is it companies who operate across borders and kind of this internet ether sphere using Bitcoin as as the backing? Is it is it to your kind of what you were just intimating before or right now? Uh, governments actually deciding to try to peg to Bitcoin in some way. Or, all, or
2: some combination? Yeah, it's a combination. It, is, it starts with individuals, just like you have the community right now. Um, and it moves up to higher and higher um, wealthy individuals, doing it as a store of value against what's happening. Paul Tudor Jones recently, um, which which causes a different on wraps, a whole bunch of other hedge funds that have to do it now as well to, to achieve beta. Um, and, and, and so... It starts, and a whole raft of people start doing it. And it starts, what you, what you mentioned with Lebanon, the on-ramps in some of these countries, just like in Venezuela, um, are really strong because, because people know what's going to happen next. So, so people are, are storing their currency outside of the currency regime. And as more people do that, in Venezuela, when if you had 5 million percent inflation in a year versus having Bitcoin, um, you did really well. With 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 Bitcoin, if you owned the best stock in the market in Venezuela, you were wiped out, right? And and so you could feed your family if you had uh, if you had Bitcoin. So the more that you have breakdown of other governments too and other uh, uh, other currencies regimes, I think it's all bullish for Bitcoin. So I think it's a combination of all of the above.
1: Let's shift gears uh maybe kind of as as a way to 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 think a little bit ponderously <laughs> uh in some ways you know I, your sense, which is one I share, is that it's unlikely that a um there's going to be any sort of uh, uh easy unwinding right or or managed. Managed transition, and it seems much more likely that we have a cataclysmic event when the music finally stops. To use the metaphor that we keep coming back to, but let's um, let's hold that aside for a second. What would it look like for people's lives if? deflation actually took hold. I mean, you you talk about it being the key to an abundant future. What does that abundant future actually look like? Or what w- could it look like?
2: Well, and you could start to see it now through your phone. I'm sure nobody wants to give up their phone. You, you said it was only invented 13 years ago, right? And think about the power you have. You have more power than most presidents had uh, 20 years ago in in your phone. You have all the information of the world sitting there. You have every app in the world that's all effectively free. And I'm sure you don't want to give it up, right? What, What if that was everywhere? What if that looked like that you could actually spend less time working and more time having the benefits of uh, benefits of technology doing the job for you. Um, I think you could have a whole renaissance of time. Like if you just actually poke on what we're just talking about right now, what is the most valuable thing in your life? And, and, and it's really your time. Where does that time go? Right. What is that, what, what, what and do you want to work 80 hours a week to say one day, I'm going to spend some time with my family. Does that seem like a rational decision? You're doing that because you're trying to work harder to be able to gain more money so you can spend more time on a a treadmill that's getting further and further away from most people. If you reverse that and you said, we're going to just let this happen yes there's a transition debt has to we have to somehow figure out how to how to do the debt but it means you would have way more time and you'd have the same and, and you'd have an increasing benefit you'd have the same lifestyle as today more savings more uh and and cost would be coming out of society, uh, cost would be coming out all the time because technology does the job better than people
1: Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, in some ways, these are arguments that are similar to uh, many thoughtful proponents of UBI, right? Part of the argument is. If people were unburdened of uh, of certain time commitments, they would produce things of meaning. They would live more meaningful lives. They would create more value, not necessarily just in terms of buying more things, but in terms of the the lived experience of the people they interact with, be it their families and
2: communities. And and again, I'm not necessarily. It's there has to be a social safety net to people get people across the, the this category. Right, so UBI might be the best best one. Um, it's just it it's a terrible idea if it's bolted on top of existing monetary policy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well it's interesting it feels to me in some ways like and you know maybe maybe some proponents of UBI will will listen to this and and can follow up you know on Twitter or whatever but it feels in some ways like you're you're coming the argument that you're making for abundance in the context of deflation is um is trying to come to the same conclusion this idea that uh the 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 Ever increasing workweek doesn't legitimate human society or individual pursuits, and that we could redesign or reimagine society to not have that requirement in it. If we let the system just change a little, it's just that you are you are actually kind of dealing with the the, the superstructure change that you see as necessary, as compared to again bolting bolting on this this cash flow for people so they can buy those still ever increasing assets like houses that just keep going up and price forever
2: here's what i see as an entrepreneur and i see it in every just different company and i see it from um and i've stu- I studied i study this extensively even in a crisis like this there's a lot of companies that that the sky is falling everything has changed and they forecasted forward their existing business forward and there's no way that it'll ever make sense and so they're hoping for a miracle where and 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 entrepreneurs say, "Okay, where is this going?" They see a different world, and they, from a first principles basis, and they say, "Okay, this doesn't make sense over here. But how do we change this to be able to make it make a lot of sense? Um, and how do we capitalize on where the, the the trend is going and everything else?" And so Kodak, inventing the digital camera, they invented Steve Sasson invented the digital camera at Kodak, and and tried twice through his executives to say, "Here's where this is going." Kodak protected their film business and drove it off a cliff. Um, Blockbuster um, had 9,000 stores and um, was the number one movie rental place and didn't buy Netflix for $50 million um, and instead added candy aisles to their stores um, because people want candy and popcorn when they rent their movie. Um, and, and both of those examples are because because executives, and you have to assume, those those companies are filled with really great executives. It's not a bunch of dummies. It's just in retrospect, they didn't see how fast technology was moving and they missed how fast that changes their entire business. If you zoom out and use that analog or those analogs in what's happening today, the global economic system doesn't see how fast technology is moving and they're adding candy aisles to their stores. right? And so... And, and they're going to drive it off a cliff. That's what's, that's what's happening. So the superstructure that we're talking about is it's easy to see in businesses. We study this in businesses all the time, right? Just because you're looking at case studies and why, why didn't these people see this? But, but it's normal for people not to see it because they're so married to the existing structure that they're trying to protect it at all costs. They don't see, they don't, they're, they're not Asking with a beginner's mindset, why does it look like this, and what, do, uh, and how do, and, and and how do we uh, build it differently? They're saying it's always looked like this. How do we protect it?
1: It's interesting. I, I mean, this this kind of idea of being stuck inside the system. Uh, because we all experience it day in, day out. It reminds me actually of David Foster Wallace's commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, which uh, was later, later branded, this is water. And the aphorism that he, that he talks about is uh, fish swimming through the water, two young fish and old fish swims by. And he says, good morning, boys, the water's beautiful. And they look at each other after he's passed and he says, what the hell is water? Right. And his point he 's talking about something a little bit different he 's talking about kind of the uh, the 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 idea of having a choice about what we think about and how we engage with people and how we engage with the world around us. but to some extent, a, a lot of what you 're talking about is these assumptions of normalcy that aren 't actually normal as much as just the byproducts of specific decisions that we 've made or been um, complicit
2: in making. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm part of a bunch of these policy decisions. I see it all the time. It, it, and when I say policy decisions, I've been asked by different governments it's kind of to make recommendations right now on what's happening. But I see the same thing across this same thing that you see typically from CEOs in business married to their uh, existing business. And so, governments all over the world right now. Here is what they're asking, right? And Fed policy: How do we get how do we get full employment? Phillips curve how do we get full uh, employment and drive infl- inflation and and every every economy globally is trying to do the exact same thing in a pretty obvious world where we are not going to have net new job creation globally we're going to have job destruction because of where technology is and what's moving and and essentially what they're doing is saying we're going to do this at all costs at cost to society it costs to monetary easing. It costs to our currency. Whatever it takes to drive full employment. What if sometimes, sometimes asking a better question allows people to, to imagine a different answer. And what if the answer? What if we asked a question: How could we design society so you didn't need as many jobs?
1: I think this is really fascinating and it gets at, you know, we we have so so many hurdles to this conversation. Uh, One of them is... How people feel okay, like how we tell a different story. We've told an up by, you know, your bootstraps value of hard work story for so long, especially in America. It's so embedded in the, the cultural psyche, the narrative. And even you see it metastasize and manifest in different ways now. We have uh, we have battles over hustle porn, right? And the idea of uh, of how much you're supposed to work, uh, you know, in, in times of crisis or whatever. It feels to me like we've got this this entire economic uh, question that is it feels insurmountable. But then on top of that, a a total reimagination of of the social contract and what it means and what is required of of any individual to be a a full contributing member of society.
2: That's what makes it so hard. It because, because and you you know because you read the book, I, I spend an extensive amount of time on. The things we think we know versus the things we know, and how far we'll go to defend a previous reality, um, at at all logic and anything else. Logic doesn't change people's mind, right? <laughs> um, they will look for something that confirms their bias. And so, I spent a bunch of time in, in the book because it is the thing that's actually preventing this. It's the same thing that prevents it in uh, in a lot of the companies because they don't want to accept a previous reality. Uh, don't want to accept a new reality. Um, they'll look for information that matches their previous beliefs and today you can find a lot of information anywhere that matches your belief it takes real it takes a lot of honest looking to be able to keep uh, and and to to look at look at the information that you would not agree with and try to see it from that point of view to really to really practice kind of first principles and 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 look deeper but that's hard to do it's really hard for people to do
1: it is really hard as as funny as as laughing as you're speaking because part of uh part of when Paul Tudor Jones made his case for Bitcoin last week he talked about how uh you kind of have to be dispassionate because often the markets uh are at odds with your priors right and if you're kind of left just sticking to your guns i think there's a larger lesson there but yeah, for sure. <laughs> as you i mean you know you've been living in this for a long time you've been living in this set of thoughts you've been you know you sh- shared this book what is there's plenty of cause for pessimism i think we've we've talked through a lot of that and and the the stress there. What if anything is a is a source of optimism for you right now
2: so i've met so many brilliant people through the writing of this book it's, i'm going to back up a step. Yeah. I don't care about one book sale. I don't make money from the books or anything that's... The, 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 you don't write something like this to make money, right? You, you, uh, um, in fact, before I wrote it, I had a conversation with my wife that it went something like this. You know that we're the one percenters and I'm going up against everyone else in this class and the entire economic system that I have to say and and what that might do is because this this could look really bad it could show it could show up negative and everybody could t- take take it out of you and you could uh and you could be the fool and it could hurt my own businesses as a result i had to i had to be comfortable with uh with that before writing it and and so so that was a real conversation to put my family through it to to do everything else before uh before writing it but it's but it. I also went through the kind of logic. I said, I can't not say something. I cannot. I cannot be. I have to. I have to do this. So we made a decision together, together that uh, that I would I would do this. And what I would say, if on on the good side, I've been a, i I've been blown away by how many great people I've met through this experience. I've been I've been blown away. It actually it's reaffirming. Um, all of what I believe, there's just really great people in the world, <laughs> and they're looking for a hopeful message to hang, hang on to, and they're fed a bill, bill of goods today that uh, that is dividing them further and further and further. So, uh, so it's been super powerful. Um, and and if there's more and more talk about what we're talking about, hey, and I will take this. I could be wrong. I would rather. I don't think I am. But I will debate that in a whole bunch of uh, uh, areas, but in a dispassionate debate to try to get to the right answer. And what i found through uh, uh, through um, through a whole bunch of people I've met through this, year one, this conversation. I wouldn't have met you otherwise. Preston's another, Pomp's another, like some of the just unbelievable people. Um, too many to list uh, uh, here, here on your show that, that I've met because of this and that are all taking this message forward. And and if enough of them do, we'll design a better future.
1: I I think it's a great point to end on. We do ourselves a a huge disservice when we assume that uh, that, that people's, what people know and understand about the world, uh, is, is complete and impossible to change rather than giving them the benefit to actually have conversations that allow them to look at things differently, right? Regardless of whatever perspective or background they come from. I think, uh, we get too easily caught in our, uh, in our bubbles of whatever it's you know, useful for someone to organize us into, rather than being kind of treated as uh, as vessels of knowledge and information, and interest, and uh, ambition, and uh, and hope and dreams that that are trying to progress and make sense of a of a confusing and changing world. Exactly. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I will make sure to link to the book for everyone who hasn't read it. I highly recommend it. And yeah, I appreciate you being here and continuing to share this, both the challenging and the hopeful side of this message.
2: It's been awesome. Thanks, Nathaniel.
1: Reflecting on this conversation with Jeff and on the book as a whole, one of the biggest challenges, it seems to me, isn't just the finding political will to actually make such Catastrophic or huge changes, things that have such deleterious impact in the short term, even if they're better in the long run. That all on its own would be a challenge worthy of better than the leaders that we have now. There is another challenge inherent in this whole situation, which has to do with our own self image. It is nearly impossible to imagine a wide scale society shift right now, at least in America where working professionals could get comfortable with the idea that they were just as valuable working only 13 or 15 hours a week as they were with their current 70 or 80-hour weeks. We take pride in these measures of inputs of our time, of, of how much we work, how hard we work, how hard we hustle. In fact, you're seeing at least some backlash around this with people calling it hustle porn, but still, These are incredibly ingrained ideas, and the idea of disentangling our self-worth and our ego from our career seems to me to be as much of a challenge in some ways as finding the political will to make these shifts. I think the good thing is that's a part of this change, this inevitable change, it feels like in some way, that we can at least exert some control over. We can start to think more broadly, more holistically about, what it means to be a person on earth, what it means to be a person in society, and to find value in ourselves, in our peers, in ways that aren't simply reflected by the way that we input into a system which is in some ways bankrupt, even though it's still chugging along. So something to think about for sure as you go about your day. And as always, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you hanging out. I appreciate you trying to figure out what tomorrow looks like with me here at The breakdown. So. Until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.